Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, greetings, uh, fellow brothers and sisters at Antioch uh, and anyone else who's listening to this recording. Uh, We find ourselves on the third Sunday of the Easter season, the period in the church calendar between the resurrection and Pentecost. And last week in our uh, seventh week of sheltering at home and not meeting together, we began a new series during this uh, Easter season, and it's called Jesus Speaks, and it's a look at all of the red letters, as it were, the, the words of Jesus that occurred after he rose from the dead. Uh, last week, Pastor Pete looked at the narrative of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus interacted with them, and we're going to pick up that same story, uh, beginning with Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And so while you turn there in your Bibles or find that on your uh, Bible app, let me catch you up with uh, what happened in between last week and and where we're picking it up today. So the two disciples uh, arrived at the village, presumably Emmaus, and invited Jesus in to supper, even though they hadn't yet recognized him. And he joined them, and as soon as he broke bread, their eyes were open, and and they came to understand that the person who had just uh, opened the entire Old Testament to them regarding the Messiah and and his need to die and rise again was, in fact, Jesus himself. Shortly after that, Jesus vanished, (laughs) and the two disciples made their way back to Jerusalem to find the other disciples and to add their eyewitness testimony to that of the women who who found the empty tomb tomb, and to explain that Jesus had, in fact, arisen from the dead. So if you're ready to follow with me, let's pick it up at Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It continues on. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now we're going to continue on in a few minutes all the way through verse 49 of chapter 24. But I want to stop and interact with two aspects aspects of what we have just read. And one of those is this whole idea of what is or what should be required in order to believe in a miracle claim such as that of the resurrection. And the second is uh, what Jesus' resurrection body might have to say for us about our own future resurrection bodies. So 
Epistemology is that branch of philosophy that deals with the category of knowledge and asks such questions as uh, what constitutes knowledge, uh, how do we come to know things, and that sort of thing. The idea of faith is far more nebulous, and the term faith has been used and misunderstood across a, a broad spectrum of, of usages. Uh, but because this is kind of what was going on in this meeting of Jesus and his disciples, questions about whether to believe in resurrection or not, I think uh, we can take the time to look at both of these ideas. Um, so empiricism is a school of thought with regard to knowledge that gives place of priority or privilege to sensory data. And we're all familiar with this idea. Now the whole, the whole claim of empiricism as the only suitable form of knowledge has long been refuted. But we're, we're still familiar with ideas like that seeing is believing, right? Or that I only believe what I see. And this is kind of the position in which at least some of the disciples were before they did in fact see the risen Jesus. Uh, I think we can all understand that uh, these ideas are only a short step from the claim that only that which can be tested through the human senses counts as knowledge. This is the, the claim of scientism, <clears throat> and it too is, is bad and easily refuted. But it's also only a short step from that claim to the metaphysical claim that the cosmos is all there was or is or ever will be. My point for now, and I won't take the time to, to refute empiricism, my point for now is that Jesus both calls out and yet condescends to the empiricist tendencies of his disciples. So he does chide them or, or weakly rebuke them for their requirement of seeing him and feeling him, touching him, to believe what he had spent three years teaching them and what the women had already told, women and other eyewitnesses had already told him that he in fact had risen from the dead. And yet he does take the time to make sure that they can see and hear him and even touch him and feel him. The reason for that is that Jesus knew very well that a lot depended on their belief in his resurrection. That, that they needed to be very certain in their hearts that indeed he had conquered death and risen from the dead because all of them would be persecuted for that belief and nearly all of them would in fact be martyred for their belief in that resurrection. Now, the, it's arguable that the opposite extreme to empiricism is the idea of fideism. And fideism is, is uh, epistemological belief that uh, exalts or demands a blind faith. And I've come across this quite a bit. You see, I'm a Christian apologist and also a scientist, and so I frequently have opportunities to share the fact that the latest scientific discoveries, including things like Big Bang cosmology, the anthropic principle, and the fossil record, powerfully support uh, the claims of Christianity and the claims that were written down in the Bible millennia ago. And it's not uncommon when I have an opportunity to share such things for someone to say to me afterwards, if you give me all these reasons to believe in Christianity, what role does faith have? 
And this is, this is a misunderstanding. It's nowhere, this idea is nowhere found in Scripture. But it's a misunderstanding that says somehow faith must be blind and, and that we must believe despite or in spite of evidence and reason. And I think part of this comes from a parallel passage. It's in, in the Gospel of John. And it's not clear whether this is exactly the same meeting that's being uh, spoken of here or whether it's a slightly different meeting of the risen Jesus and his disciples. But in this one, Thomas is singled out as the one disciple who had not yet encountered the risen Jesus. And so he's still in doubt. We, we understand the, the idea of a doubting Thomas. And so in this passage, in John 20, 29, Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so it's this last sentence here that has been misused by evangelical Christians in our day to promote fideism and to somehow separate Christian and biblical claims from the realms of reason and evidence. This is not what is going on in this passage. Jesus was not rebuking Thomas for requiring evidence, but for requiring an extraordinary amount of evidence. He had the evidence of all the eyewitnesses of the other disciples and the teachings that Jesus had shared for the last several years, and yet he still wanted more. And the reason I know that this is not what uh, Jesus or the Gospel writer John had in view is because of the context. The very next sentences in John's Gospel say this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these evidences, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here John and the Holy Spirit affirm that the intent of the entire gospel was to lay out reasons and evidence that could lead listeners and readers to life-giving faith. And so historic Christianity takes it that saving faith is comprised of three things. The first is right knowledge, a right understanding of who God is, uh, of the human condition and the need for forgiveness and salvation, and of how God in Jesus uh, provided a solution to that need. The second part of saving faith is agreement with that right knowledge. And the third part, the most important part, is a step of trust. This is not an illogical leap of blind faith, but rather a step of trust that flows very logically out of the right knowledge and the agreement with it. It's easy and popular to cite James 2.19 to show that the first two steps are not sufficient for saving faith because James 2.19 says even the demons believe they have right faith and agreement with it, but they shudder or tremble at the thought. Let me take a moment here to say that even the chief priests, who were the ones most directly responsible for Jesus' death on the Roman cross, knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Now let me uh, support that claim. So by Jesus' day, the expectation of the imminent coming of the Messiah had reached a fevered height. And there were many messianic pretenders in Jesus' day. And so the Jewish chief priests, scribes, and leaders had devised a complex system of tests, which included questions to be interviewed, to, to be 
uh, addressed to these messianic pretenders and uh, a series of miracles that would in fact uh, identify the true Messiah from all pretenders. Jesus passed all of these tests each time as the Gospels record that, that individuals or groups were sent to test him with questioning, Jesus passed those tests. And the three types of miracles that the true Messiah was understood as being capable of were the healing of a leper, because the disease of leprosy was otherwise completely intractable in Jesus' day. The healing of a person born blind, a person blind from birth, and Jesus did both heal lepers and a man born blind. And the third such miracle is that of the exorcism of a demon in a dumb person. So believe it or not, in that day, there were many people who, who could exorcise demons, cast demons out of people who were possessed by them. But there was a very clear methodology for doing that. And that involved asking the demon its name and the demon would respond using the vocal cords of the possessed person. So to separate the true Messiah from these other exorcists would require that he be able to <clears throat> exorcise a demon from a person who was himself dumb. And Jesus did that as recorded in Matthew 12. So the second thing I want to talk about is how Jesus' own resurrection body is the only example that we have for thinking about, speculating on what our resurrection bodies might look like. Okay, And so in this passage that we've just read, Jesus could be seen, heard, and felt, and he could even eat. So it seemed that he was at great pains to show that the physical aspects of his resurrection body were much the same as any other physical body. At the same time, the passage seems to indicate that he was capable of passing through walls of vanishing and appearing suddenly. And so this leads uh, my daughter Willow, for example, to wonder if when we have glorified resurrection bodies, we might also be able to teleport, as it were, from one place to another. Now, I think the Lord is honored when we, in humility, speculate about things like this. But the main point I want to make here is that there is a connection between Jesus' resurrection body and what we can expect of our own. And let me take you to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, where it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's at his second coming, when he returns to earth, that we will receive our resurrection bodies, whether we've died or whether we're still alive at that time. So the passage and, and, and others like it seem to indicate that there is a real connection, a real similarity a good comparison to be drawn between Jesus' resurrection body and that which will one day be ours. I think there's two major differences that ought to be highlighted. And, and the first is that Jesus received his resurrection body after only three days in the grave, 
whereas ours will come to us at the end of the age when he returns in the new creation. The other di dif difference is that his resurrection body ascended to heaven, whereas ours will not. And, and his ascension to heaven was a very temporary thing, even though it's ongoing in our time frame. But both his resurrection body and ours are suited for the new creation, not primarily for heaven. Let me say one more thing about Jesus' resurrection body. Uh, and that is that he asked for and received and ate broiled fish. And this causes me to speculate that perhaps we too will uh, eat fish in the resurrection. Although that kind of seems at odds with the idea that there'll be no death in the new creation. And, and I would presume that that applies even to other animals. So my solution to that is to speculate that in the new creation, fish and other animals will willingly, gladly offer themselves up to be eaten, consumed, nourished by in the one species that has been created in God's own image. Now the one thing I do know, this is not speculation, is that in this fallen present creation being redeemed, there have been numerous fish who have tried very hard, many of them quite successfully, to prevent this particular fallen image bearer to catch and consume them. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Luke 24, uh, verses 44 and following. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So let me pause here to say that most every detail of the events of Jesus's life in general and of the last week of Jesus's life in particular had to be just so, just the way they were, because many of them were ordained beforehand and foretold in previous scriptures and the prophets and such. Here again, I think, is a case where our time-boundedness uh, confuses our understanding of, of these issues. So uh, it's tempting for us to think that uh, Jesus must have had half of his mind occupied with orchestrating the events of his last days in order that each of the, each of the boxes would be checked as far as uh, prophecies that needed to be fil fulfilled at that time. Uh, but that's not the way it was at all. So uh, it, it wasn't the case that if Jesus' disciples had not found the colt of a donkey for Jesus to ride in in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, that's, that somehow the whole, the whole thing would have to have been put off till the following Passover because Zechariah had prophesied in chapter 9, verse 9, of just such a, a colt of a donkey in the triumphal entry. The reality, the, great, the broader reality, the deeper reality is that the Holy Spirit is outside of time. And so as in the 600s BC, the Holy Spirit was inspiring Zechariah to pen the prophecy of the events of the triumphal entry and the cult of a donkey, the Holy Spirit was simultaneously uh, able to access those events in the week leading to Jesus' death 
as they were occurring because the Holy Spirit was outside of time. The past, the future, the present are all equally accessible to the triune Godhead. Okay? I hope you understand what I'm, I'm trying to say there. Let me point out that Jesus' reference here to the Law of Moses, the, the Prophets, and the Psalms was a reference to all of what we call the, the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Scriptures, what Jews call the Tanakh. And Tanakh is simply a, a taking of the first three letters of each of the three parts of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Law, the Nevi'im, which is the writings of the prophets, and the Psalms and all the other writings, which are the Ketuvim. Okay. Moving on, Luke 24, 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's a great deal in here, and I don't have time to give any of this the treatment it deserves. In fact, all I want to do is focus on uh, a three-word statement beginning from Jerusalem, and I want to make three points uh, from that statement. And the first is that the reason the, the preaching of the gospel had to begin in Jerusalem is because there were numerous, one of the reasons, is because there were numerous prophecies that designate Jerusalem as the seat of salvation. Uh, Joel, Obadiah, Zechariah, etc. One of the clearest articulations of this is Isaiah 2.3, which says, For out of Zion shall go the teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Second point I want to make is that uh, the preaching of the gospel began in Jerusalem because the events upon which the kingdom and the gospel of that kingdom are founded occurred in Jerusalem. I should also point out that the uh, center of Jesus' eternal reign, future reign, will be the new Jerusalem. So if you go to Jerusalem itself and the Temple Mount, you realize that Jews still believe that Messiah will come to Jerusalem from the east. Christians believe that Jesus will return to Jerusalem from the east. And so Muslims, who are in control of that part of Jerusalem, have walled up the eastern gate in, order, in a vain attempt to prevent either of those occurrences from happening. But this idea of the preaching of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem also has bearing on even a modern historical case for the historicity of the resurrection. So let me give you real briefly uh, uh, such an argument. It's called the minimal facts argument of Gary Habermas. And Habermas uses only those historical facts which through uh, surveys he's done with his colleagues in his history and, and philosophy and, and New Testament scholarship, historical facts that are admitted by nearly all scholars, even the most skeptical. And he uses those bare facts to show that the only explanation that covers all those facts is that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. So in one form of the minimal facts argument, 
Habermas points to the fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, that his disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them, that Paul, who was a persecutor, persecutor of the church, was suddenly changed to a follower when he had uh, an experience that he believed to be of the risen Jesus, and that James, the brother of Jesus, turned from being a skeptic to a, the leader of the Jerusalem church because of just such an experience. Okay. Now, all of these are testified not only in the Christian scriptures, but by Jews and, and Roman his, historians who were opposed to this new uh, sect of Christianity. Uh, Habermas goes on to point to the empty tomb as well, admitting that not as many skeptics accept this as a historical fact. But Habermas goes on to point out why, logically, we all should agree that the tomb was empty. And, and the first such line of argument is the fact that the teaching of the resurrection and of the empty tomb occurred right away and right there in Jerusalem where all the events of the crucifixion and such had occurred. So that if, in fact, any of those opponents of Christianity would have liked to have nipped this idea in the bud, all they would have had to do was go to the tomb and produce the body. That they did not is uh, telling evidence that they couldn't because the tomb was in fact empty. The second line of argument is what Habermas calls enemy attestation. And this is the idea that some of those who wanted to squash this new religion claimed that in fact the disciples of Jesus must have stolen the body. And whether or not there was any validity to that claim, it is tacit admission that the tomb was indeed empty. So when the boy comes to his teacher and says that the dog ate his homework, the claim of the dog eating it might be dubious, but the fact that there is no homework to produce to the teacher is certain. In the same way, this claim by his enemies that the disciples stole Jesus' body is good evidence that, in fact, the tomb was empty and needed explanation. The third line of evidence is the testimony of women. So if, in fact, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but this whole story was a fiction, uh, an invention of the disciples or the gospel writers, no one in that culture in which the, the testimony of women was not acceptable to either the Jews or the Romans of that day would have invented such a story and made women's, women the bearers of the evidence. And yet in all four Gospels, it's the women who first identify the tomb as being empty. And in only two of the Gospels do uh, one or more men subsequently find the tomb empty and argue the same thing. So the, the only explanation for why the women testify to the empty tomb is not that it was an invented story, but that that is in fact what actually happened. Okay. The third point I want to make about this, uh, this fact of Jesus' uh, kingdom being proclaimed from Jerusalem first is that the forgiveness accomplished by the atonement, by the death of Jesus on the cross, was extended first by him in Jerusalem to the very people responsible for seeing Jesus 
crucified. Okay. Um, church history is full of times and eras in which the Jewish people have been persecuted and murdered at the hands of those calling themselves Christians. Uh, with the Holocaust being the most glaring example, the first uh, claim of the Jews as Christ killers comes all the way back in 140 AD in the, the early church father Justin Martyr. And in, in many of these persecutions throughout history that have, that have been at the hands of people who called themselves followers of Christ, this idea of the Jews as Christ killers has, has been the justification. Um, there was about a 70-year hiatus after the Holocaust in anti-Semitism when the, when the global conscience uh, wanted to repudiate all such persecution of Jewish people based on the horrors of what happened to them in Germany. Uh, but anti-Semitism is alive and well today and is as, as vigorous as ever all throughout the world, including here in our own country. And it should be the job of Christians to lament and repudiate this arguably one of the greatest injustices uh, ever committed in the name of Christianity. And my point for now is that this claim that the Jews somehow deserve persecution because they were the killers of Christ is at stark odds with the example that Jesus set for us on the very first day of his resurrection when he made this atonement available to the very same people who condoned and who in fact were directly responsible for his own death on the cross. So with all of that, let me... Uh, land this plane by first circling over the times in which we find ourselves today by reference to the COVID-19 pandemic which has us sequestering and not meeting with one another and also to the occurrence this week as I've been preparing this talk of Earth Day April 22nd on our calendars. As Christians we fully acknowledge that one of the relationships that was broken at the fall one of the relationships that is being reconciled because of Jesus' resurrection is that between humankind and the rest of creation. And this pandemic is a stark example of the, that same brokenness. All of the evidence points to the fact that this virus crossed species to humanity in a wet market in China that is a, that is a powerful example of inhumane treatment of other animals. Um, when we use the word inhumane, we're, not, we're, we're never referring to the idea that, that such a behavior is something of which humans, fallen humans, are incapable. Rather, I think the root of this idea of inhumanity is uh, to describe behaviors of which humanity created the image of God before the fall would have been incapable. Okay? So the situation we find ourselves in is well described by a, a passage in Romans 8 beginning at verse 18. The creation is groaning awaiting its own redemption. We are groaning awaiting our adoptions, our adoption as sons and daughters of God and anticipating our own resurrection 
and the Holy Spirit himself groans as he intercedes for us in the situation in which we find ourselves. But the good news doesn't stop there because the Holy Spirit not only groans and intercedes for us, but in all things the triune Godhead is working for good. And that all things includes the pandemic in which we're experiencing right now. So let me come back to the very first red words that we looked at today. And I want to pray them over you as a blessing. So hear these words as being spoken by your own Lord, risen Lord Jesus, to you personally. Peace to you. It is I. I have conquered death. Be at peace. My death and resurrection have redeemed you. You are forgiven and adopted into my Father's family. Peace to you. My resurrection is the assurance of your own resurrection and of the reconciling of all created things. Be at peace. My kingdom is already unfolding, and soon I will return to remove all suffering, sorrow, injustice, and evil from my creation. I am risen. I am still in control. My loving plans are going forth. I am for you. Peace to you. <laughs>